It's the book of Psalms this evening, and it's Psalm number 10. We'll read all of the psalm together, the 10th psalm, and we'll read from the first verse right down to the end there, Psalm 10. It's good to see so many in on a Monday night, especially over the half-term break, and uh, it's not a great evening either, and we really appreciate you coming along. Uh, to seek the Lord, and we pray that God will help us as we pray this evening. Over the last number of weeks, we've been thinking about what it means to approach the throne of grace in prayer, and how we're to do that, and I want to speak for a little while upon the subject of humility. So we'll read from the 10th Psalm, verse number 1. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages and the secret places. Doth he murder the innocent? His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked contend God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief and spite. To requite it with thy hand, the poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his hand. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed and the man, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. And we know that the Lord will bless the reading of his precious, precious word. Humility is so important whenever it comes to prayer. In fact, we could say that nothing is so detrimental to prayer and progress in the Christian life than pride. Pride is the greatest hindrance to happiness and holiness. Pride is the greatest barrier that there is to blessing. Pride is the roadblock to revival. Pride is prohibitive to prayer, and pride is prohibitive to progress, even in the life of the Christian. 
Pride can be defined as elevated, elaborate, and an inaccurate view of oneself. Pride is to have an inflated ego. Somebody described the word ego as edging God out. E-G-O. And pride seeks to edge God out. It's interesting that the middle letter in the word pride is the letter I. The middle letter in the word sin is the letter I. The middle letter in the word Lucifer is the letter I. And so pride is so self-willed. Pride is so self-seeking. Pride is so self-sufficient. And pride is so self-confident that the individual who is proud in heart does not feel his need to seek after God. And it's pride that stops the Christian from praying aright. Verse 4 of the psalm says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. And we could say that even to a lesser degree, whenever pride enters into the heart of a child of God, it hinders us and holds us back from really seeking after God. Pride spells man with a capital M, and it spells God with a small g. Pride used to be listed among the seven deadly sins. But now pride is celebrated, pride is promoted, and pride is encouraged. In fact, pride has become a movement within its own right. And yet, in the eyes of God Almighty, pride is detestable. The book of Proverbs 6 and 17, God says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And right at the very top of the list, a proud look. God hates pride. Pride is detestable in the eyes of God. Now, the sins of Sodom were many. So often we focus upon the homosexuality and the promiscuity in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse number 49, God lists their three cardinal sins. And he says, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. And right at the top of the list, pride. And then fullness of bread, gluttony, and abundance of idleness. God hates pride. Pride in God's sight is detestable. Pride in God's eyes is disgraceful. Proverbs 11 and verse number 2. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. Pride brings shame and disgrace into a life, also in a society, a generation, and also a nation. Pride as well is so destructive. The Word of God says in Proverbs 15 and verse number 25, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud. Chapter 16 of Proverbs, verse 18 says, pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride has destroyed kings. Pride has destroyed nations. Pride has destroyed entire empires. It's well documented that the Roman Empire and the Grecian Empire and the Babylonian Empires, they all fail because of pride. Furthermore, pride is extremely divisive. The book of Proverbs says that only by pride cometh contention. And whenever there's strife and there's division and there's disunity and there's bickering and there's arguing, fighting and there's fallouts, the Word of God says the root problem is the problem of pride. Only by pride cometh contention. And then pride as well is so depressive. 
Pride is detestable. Pride is disgraceful. Pride is destructive. Pride is divisive. And pride is also depressive. Proverbs 29 and 23 says, A man's pride shall bring him low. And with so much promotion of pride and arrogance and egotism and self-will and self-sufficiency and self-seeking and edging God out, it's no wonder that there are so many tonight that find themselves in the depths of absolute despair because the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God actually says that he resists the pride but gives grace to the humble. Pride defiled heaven. Pride dug hell. And pride defiled paradise. More homes are broken through pride than through anything else. More churches are wrecked through pride than any other sin. And more lives are destroyed through pride than through anything else. Pride can be personal. Pride can be political. And pride can be patriotic. Pride can be national. Pride can be denominational. But pride is always irrational. Pride is the soil in which all the sins, all other sins flourish. Outward sin is merely a manifestation of inward pride. Pride is the central sin of humanity. And so whenever it comes to prayer, humility is vital. If we want God to really answer prayer, we need to humble ourselves. Remember the uh, program that God gave to Solomon whenever he built this temple for the healing of the nation? He said in 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 14, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall pray. He didn't say that. He said, if my people, which are called by my name, shall first of all humble themselves and then pray and confess their sins and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And so the first step in really seeking God for a move of his spirit is humility. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. The psalmist here said in Psalm 10 and verse number 12, as he links humility and prayer together. He says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand, forget not the humble. Lord, remember the humble. Don't forget those who have humbled themselves before thee and are now calling upon thy name. Verse number 17, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Even before the humble individual prays, God sees and hears the very desires of their heart. Whether they pray audibly or not, God hears the very desires of the humble. The previous psalm, Psalm 9 and verse number 12, when he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. And so humility and prayer fit together like hand and glove. And the word of God invites us to come boldly to the throne of grace. And we have been considering some different aspects of 
the character and the behavior of the individual who really wants to commune with God. Faith is necessary. Boldness is necessary. Clean hands and a pure heart are necessary. But certainly humility is vital whenever it comes to prayer. And so I want to speak just for a, a while this evening, very simply, upon the subject of humility. First of all, will you consider with me just for a moment or two to consider the personification of humility. The personification of humility. If you want to know what humility is, then look to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is glorious, full of majesty. He's omnipresent. He's almighty. He's from everlasting to everlasting. All things are under his feet. But we could also say that God is the most humble being in the entire universe. Because the psalmist said in Psalm 113.6 that God humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and the things that are on earth. God who is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, who cannot look upon sin, looks upon this earth with favor, with mercy, with grace, and with compassion. And there's no greater instance of divine humility than the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3 says, He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Isn't that a remarkable statement? We know that the Word of God declares the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. But Paul says there in Romans 8 and verse number 3, he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. The Son of God became a man and lived amongst men and looked externally, outwardly, just like any other man as far as his physical body was concerned. As it says in Philippians 2 and verse number 7, he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I think it's incredible when you consider the conversion of Zacchaeus, the Son of God standing at the foot of that sycamore tree, veiled in flesh, veiled in robes of humanity, looking up into the face of a sinner. That's condescension. Or whenever the Lord girded himself with a towel and washed the very dirt and dust off the feet of his disciples. What a remarkable illustration and example of humility. The humility of his life. The prophet Zechariah says, Thy king cometh unto thee, meek and lowly, riding in the colt of an ass. And he went into the city of Jerusalem, not in a noble steed, not led by military generals, not with a crown upon his head, but he went into the city of Jerusalem riding on a meager foal. What a remarkable illustration of humility. Christ was free from all worldly pride, even in his appearance. The scripture says he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He was free from the desire of worldly success because he made himself of no reputation. He had no desire for riches, wealth, and prosperity because the apostle Paul said he became poor 
and he had nowhere to lay his head. He wasn't concerned about rank. He wasn't concerned about reputation because he was born the son of a peasant woman and lived in the despised town of Nazareth. He didn't really care for the adulations of men. He was meek, the Bible says, and lowly. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. The humility of his life. And then also the humility of his cross. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Is there any greater example of humility than somebody standing in Pilate's judgment hall, the Prince of Glory, answering not a word, not trying to defend himself, led like a lamb to the slaughter. He could have called 12 legions of angels and they allowed his creatures to strip him of his garments and to pull the hair out of his cheeks and to spit into his face and to crown him with thorns and nail him to a cross. And then he took our guilt and sin and shame upon his own body, upon the tree, and then he was buried. Jesus Christ is the absolute personification of true spiritual humility. Therefore, we could say tonight, nothing in man is more opposed to God Almighty than the spirit of pride. Jesus Christ, the personification of humility. Then let me say something about the principle of humility. What is humility? Well, it's good to consider, first of all, what humility is not. Humility is not beating yourself up. Humility is not flogging yourself. Humility is not giving yourself a hard time. Humility is not abasing yourself and having a, a really low level of, of self-esteem. Humility is not being proud of your modesty either. Charles Dickens in his book, David Copperfield, has a character by the name of Uriah Heep. And Uriah Heep takes great pride in telling everybody how humble he is. It's usually the first thing that he tells people when he meets them, I'm so humble. He's one of the most humble people you could ever meet and he's glad to tell everybody about it. That is not true humility at all. Humility does not promote itself. As soon as we think we've got humility, it's evidence perhaps that we don't have it at all. Humility is not manufactured either to conform to a religious code. Paul writing to the church at Colossae said in Colossians 2 and verse number 18, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels and intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So you've got pride and this voluntary humility. It's really asceticism. In some religions in the world, they abstain from meats and they go on pilgrimages and they flog themselves and beat themselves up and try to humble themselves. And it's really, it's really a form of pride. It's not biblical humility at all. Somebody once said, it was Oswald Chambers in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, he says, there is nothing more awful than conscious humility. It is the most satanic type of pride. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we can be so proud of our humility. Indeed, I think we can, we always are if we try to give the impression of humility. Humility, what is it? It's simply right thinking about ourselves 
and right thinking about God. Elizabeth Elliot, after the death of her husband, wrote a little article simply entitled, I Am Clay. And she was taking her thoughts from Isaiah 59, that lovely portion in Scripture whenever the prophet of God went down to the potter's house and saw him lifting the clay and putting it upon the wheel. And she noted that our English word humble comes from a root word humus, which really means clay. Whenever a person realizes what they are, they're just made from the dust of the ground. We're made from clay, but at the same time, God has made us in his own image that ought to humble us. Humility is right thinking about ourselves and right thinking about God. Humility views God as being high, holy, eternal, almighty, and yet full of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Humility is thinking right about ourselves, naturally. What we are in Adam. If we only knew what we really are at the very base of the human heart and the base of human nature, we're sinful. Naturally, we're proud. Naturally, we're evil. Naturally, our hearts are hard. Naturally, our hearts are wicked. Naturally, we're selfish. The Bible says that the heart, the human heart, and everybody's heart is exactly the same in this regard. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. John Wesley once said, whenever I look into my heart, I see nothing but hell. Isn't that a remarkable thing to say, this holiness preacher? I look into my heart and I see nothing but hell. So humility is right thinking about God, right thinking about ourselves naturally, but also humility is right thinking about ourselves as we are in Jesus Christ. Isn't it one of the most humbling things in all the world? Whenever you read the Bible and you discover that the child of God, the Christian, has been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Chosen, Mr. McShane said, not for good in me. Wakened up from wrath to flee. Hidden in the Savior's side. By the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show. By my love how much I owe. There's a man who understood the Bible doctrine of election. God chose me, yes. But he didn't choose me based on anything that he saw in me. But God chose me out of his free grace. He chose me not for good in me, but free grace chose me, and free grace awoke me, and free grace opened my heart and drew me to the cross. Child of God tonight, you were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And then you've also been justified. Your sins have been forgiven. And again, it's not because of anything in us. Our sins have been freely and fully, and finally, and forever forgiven. And we have also been declared righteous. And Jesus Christ has not only taken our sins, but in exchange, he has given us his righteousness. And we're also accepted into the family and fold of God, adopted into God's family. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And we are loved tonight with an everlasting love. I can't think of anything more humbling than that. It's humbling whenever we see ourselves in Adam. 
But it's more humbling still whenever we see what we are and what we have in Christ, the last Adam. So humility acknowledges the bad things God says about us, but humility also accepts the good things that God says about us. The Word of God says that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. Peter says that God has made us to be partakers of the divine nature. And we are kings and priests unto God. The personification of humility is Christ himself. The principle of humility is revealed whenever we consider what we are in Christ. And then let's consider a few practicalities of humility. Humility is not something that is merely intellectual. Humility is not something that is merely emotional. Humility is not something that is only spiritual. Humility is also something that is deeply practical. Humility affects all of our relationships. Humility affects our relationship inwardly with ourselves. Humility is right thinking, right thinking inwardly. The Bible says that the thought life of the believer is absolutely vital. As a man thinketh in his heart, so shall he be. As a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. You know, it's true to say tonight that you become like the things that you worship. Young people maybe idolize movie stars, pop stars, football stars, and they become like them and they want to be like them. As you think about something, you ultimately become like that. And what our concept of God is determines the type of people that we become. People sometimes have a, an image of God and they focus solely upon God's anger and God's wrath and God's justice. And they can become very angry people. And then there are others who maybe focus only on God's grace or only in God's truth or only in God's love. And we can very easily make a caricature of God and we become like the attribute that we think upon the most. That's why it's important to have a balanced view of God. But humility starts in the mind. Paul said in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 19, serving Christ or serving God with all humility of mind. Writing to the Romans, the apostle Paul said in Romans 12 and verse number 3, for I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Humility is right thinking. That's our internal, our inward relationship. Then humility as well is right living. That's our upward relationship, our relationship with the Lord himself. Do you remember that little verse in the prophet Micah? Micah chapter 6 and verse number 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. There is the will of God for every believer to do justly and to love mercy. True Christians should love mercy because we have all experienced mercy and it should be our desire that others will experience mercy as well. God does not stand over us tonight with a magnifying glass in one hand and a big stick in the other 
And we shouldn't look over other people with that type of mentality either. The true Christian does justly. They love mercy, but they also walk humbly with their God. That speaks of our upward relationship, walking in humility, walking humbly with our God, recognizing who He is, recognizing what we are in Adam, recognizing what we are in Christ. Humility is right thinking. That's inward. Humility is right living. That's upward. Humility is right advertising. That's outward. You say tonight, well, what do you mean by that? First Peter chapter 5 and verse number 5 says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud but giveth grace to the humble. And whenever you put on your clothing and you go out in the day, people can see what you're wearing. And if we're in Christ and we're thinking right and we're living right, then horizontally, outward, we should be advertising right. We should appear right before men, not to be clothed in pride, but rather clothed in humility and humble ourselves before God and even before each other. Martin Luther tells a story. It's an allegory, I'm sure. Two little mountain goats. They're on this little track. It's only about six or eight inches wide, corkscrewing around the side of a mountain, a huge cliff face down one side, and one's coming down and one's going up, and they meet each other head on. Now, I don't know much about goats, but I understand that they're not very good at walking backwards. And so the two goats, they just stand and have this face off. Who's going to give in? Are they going to butt heads and turf the other one off? And then one of the goats just lay down and allowed the other goat to walk over the top of it and go in its way. And so they both got to their destination safely and happily. But it took humility. It took humility for that little goat to lie down. And it maybe even took humility for the other goat to walk over the top of it. But sometimes we don't like to lie down to others. There is nothing worse in the life of a believer than advertising a Christianity that stinks of arrogance and stinks of pride. It's a false advertising of Christ. Christians, therefore, should be humble. The personification of humility, that's our Lord. The principle of humility. The, prince, the practicalities of humility. What about the profitability of humility? God's blessings seem to be imparted most generously and most fully to those who are humble. Let me just give you a few simple uh, illustrations or applications, if you like. First of all, humility gets God's attention. Humility gets the ear of God. Isaiah 66, verse number 2, God says, To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit that trembleth at my word. God says, I look to the individual who is humble. I don't look to those who are proud. In fact, he says, I resist the proud, but I do look to those who are humble. Humility gets God's attention. We read in the psalm that the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. And I think it's a telling thing that in so many churches tonight, and so many churches in this day and generation struggle to have a prayer meeting at all 
because the modern church does not really feel its need for God. We can man-manage, we can advertise, we can organize, we can subsidize, we can denominationalize our way into outward blessing. But the true child of God recognizes without him we can do nothing. And therefore we need to seek God. And God says, to this man will I look, even to him that has got a contrite spirit. God looks for and listens to the humble and contrite heart. Humility gets God's attention. Humility secures the grace of God. James 4, 6, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. I'm sure tonight we all recognize our need for grace. We recognize that whenever we came to Christ for salvation. And if you've been on the Christian road for a little while, you soon discover, Lord, I need grace. I need help. I need you to uh, impart to me strength and I need you to succor me and support me and lead me and guide me. Lord, I need grace. Maybe a trial that you're facing. Maybe a decision that you want to make. Maybe you're going out in some Christian endeavor to do something for the Lord and we all need grace. God gives grace to the humble and therefore the humble person will be found oftentimes at the throne of grace. Humility brings vitality to the weary saint. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 57 and verse number 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite ones. Do you ever feel your need for personal revival? Do you ever feel your need for newness of strength? Do you ever find yourself getting tired and weary and maybe even downcast and discouraged in the Christian life? The Bible says that even the youth shall be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. Personal revival begins in the humble heart. Many years ago as a young Christian, I lifted a book off the, the shelf in the Christian bookstore in Lisburn. It was simply entitled The Calvary Road. Small little book which suited me well. And it was just about 60 pages by a man called Roy Hessian. What a wonderful little book it was. And Roy Hessian says in his book The Calvary Road, God can only fill valleys, not mountains. God can only fill valleys, not mountains. And if we want to be filled with the Spirit, and filled with the fullness of God, we need to be empty. And that speaks of humility. Humility, furthermore, raises us up and enables us to stand. James chapter 4 and verse number 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. God uplifts, exalts, and honors the humble. If pride goes before destruction, and pride goes before a fall, Honor goes before humility. Furthermore, humility upholds us when we would otherwise fall. The uh, book of Proverbs 29, let me just get the verse. Proverbs 29 and verse number 23. Honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. How easy it is to fall. and We often do and we can do and many will. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian and revival preacher, says, Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach 
as humility. Nothing sets us so much out of the devil's reach as humility. This is what the book of Proverbs is saying. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Humility also enriches the life. Proverbs 22 and verse number four. By humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Humility enriches the life. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, said towards the end of his life, I'm not sure that I was God's first choice for China. I believe God had in view somebody else. Maybe they weren't willing to go, but then God looked down and God saw me. God, he says, perhaps was looking for the weakest, most insignificant instrument that he could find, and he found Hudson Taylor. He says, I think God was looking for a little man, little enough so that he could show himself strong through him. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. And whenever Hudson Taylor was an aged man, he was preaching in a very large Presbyterian church in Melbourne in Australia. And the moderator of that particular meeting introduced God's servant Hudson Taylor in glowing and eloquent words, spoke highly of his great accomplishments in China and of the dozens of young men and women, aye, the hundreds who had followed in his footsteps. And he introduced Hudson Taylor as our illustrious guest. Mr. Taylor was somewhat embarrassed. He simply stood up and said, Dear friends, I am a little servant of an illustrious master. That's humility. And God blessed him for it. One last thing as we think about humility. We have thought about its personification, its principle, its practicalities, its profitability. One last thing, the pursuit of humility. The prophet Micah said, we mentioned it already, that we are to walk humbly with our God. How do we pursue humility? How do we become humble people that God can use? How do we deal with pride in our hearts that rises up and manifests itself in so many different ways? Just a few simple principles by way of conclusion. First of all, consider Jesus Christ our Lord. Consider Christ himself. We often quote, don't we, from Rome, or Hebrews 12, wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. It's hard to be proud whenever you measure yourself alongside the Son of God. It's hard to be proud whenever you consider the cost of your forgiveness. Isaac Watts said in his great hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Consider Christ. Contemplate Calvary. Anybody who looks long and hard and openly and honestly at the cross of Calvary cannot be proud, but rather finds himself humble before the Lord in the presence of such love, in the presence of such grace, in the presence of such beauty, in the presence of such holiness. Consider Christ. 
consider Calvary, contemplate the cross. Remember as well what you are and where you were whenever the Lord found you. In Isaiah 51, the prophet of God says, we are to remember the pit from whence we have been dug. The Lord stooped down from glory, stooped down to reach so little. Years ago, I read a story about a lady in a, in a fur coat, ever so well-dressed, a very rich, wealthy lady. And in the winter time, she was found lying at her side with her hand in the, in, in, down into a drain, hooking through the, the muck and the gutters. And what had happened was somehow her, her wedding ring for her husband had fallen off her hand and she was reaching down to try to find it and redeem it and find it and get it back in her finger. And the Son of God came into this world and reached down into the muck and the mire and into the pit and lifted us up and has caused us to be seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You want to be humble, look in the mirror. I say that in a physical sense and I say it as well in a spiritual sense. I heard a preacher that I got friendly with a while ago and he says, you know, whenever you get over 40, he says the most humbling thing you can do is get changed in front of the mirror. There'll be no proud, proud hearts after that. But the Bible is described as being a mirror. James chapter 1, if any man look into this glass, into the Word, sees himself, the Word of God shows us what we are. And then lastly, recognize grace. Anything good in us, anything truly good about us is all because of grace. The Apostle Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He described himself as being the least of the apostles. He described himself as being the least of all saints. He said he was the chief of sinners. But then he also said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He had a wonderful concept of God's grace. May God write his word tonight upon